It's good to be with you, brothers, this morning as we take on a subject like the supremacy of Christ over injustice. In the third century, a Christian named Cyprian wrote these words to a friend. He says, This seems a cheerful world when I view it from the fair garden under the shadow of these vines. In a room like this, many of us might share that sentiment. This seems like a cheerful place because compared to much of the world, we live in relative comfort, enjoying the blessings of freedom and opportunity. And so I'm guessing many of us don't feel like victims of great injustice. Injustice is something we read about in history books or we see stories on TV, places, other places in the world, or maybe police shooting in Fort Worth recently, but it, we see it. We don't necessarily think about it every day. So when we take up the subject of the supremacy of Christ over injustice, it doesn't feel maybe as relevant as other topics this semester. Because of where we live and how we live, we may not realize how much the Bible actually says about injustice. But when we take a closer look, as I took a closer look, we see that God's word from beginning to end is full of teaching about justice and injustice. So preparing for this talk was like a wake-up call for me, and perhaps it'll be a wake-up call for some of you. I want to allow Cyprian from the third century to actually finish his thought. So he says, this seems a cheerful world when I view it from the fair garden under the shadow of these vines, but if I climbed some great mountain and looked out over the wide lands, you know very well what I would see. Brigands on the high road, pirates on the seas, in the amphitheaters men murdered to please the applauding crowds, under all roofs, misery and selfishness. It's a really bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world. Now we know that the Lord created a good world, a really good world, but so many people past and present because of what they've seen and what they've experienced would agree with Cyprian because injustice raises huge questions. How do we make sense of the reality of injustice? How do we explain the roots of it? And how does the Lord respond to it? In Colossians 1, Paul writes, And Jesus Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent or have the supremacy. So how do we see the supremacy of Christ in a world full of injustice? This morning we'll read Psalm 10 and use it as a frame to see three perspectives on justice. As we read, I want you to think about the oppressed, the oppressor, and the Lord. So let's turn our attention to God's holy word, Psalm 10, on your handout. Psalmist writes, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. 
The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account, but you do see. For you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You've been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Gary Haugens, the CEO and founder of International Justice Mission, and in his great book, which I would recommend, Good News About Injustice, Gary shares some of the moments that the Lord used to form him into a man who seeks justice. In 1994, Gary was working for the Department of Justice, and he was detailed to the United Nations to serve as the director of the UN investigation of the genocide in Rwanda. And so in 100 days between April 7th and July 15th in 1994, Hutu militias targeted the Tutsis in Rwanda, and somewhere between 800,000 and a million people were killed, often by their neighbors. So Gary Haugen shares what it was like to be on the ground. He writes, Standing with my boots deep in the reeking muck of a Rwandan mass grave where thousands of innocent people have been horribly slaughtered, I have no words, no meaning, no life, no hope if there's not a God of history and time who's absolutely outraged, absolutely furious, absolutely burning with anger toward those who took it into their own hands to commit such acts. So imagine being Gary and standing around bodies of men and women and children piled up and left to rot, sometimes in churches where they fled to pray and seek refuge. And this feels like an extreme example, but it's actually not unique, and it's not the worst that we've seen. The reality of injustice is shocking, and Psalm 10 captures the perspective of the victim, the oppressed. Look at verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The psalmist asked the question any of us might ask in the face of injustice. Why are you far away, Lord? I think of the disciples in the boat with Jesus, and the storm comes, and Jesus is asleep, and the disciples wake him up and say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Injustice makes us think that God has fallen asleep on the job. Psalm 10 also helps us see what the Bible means by injustice. In our time, it seems like everyone can cry out, this is an injustice, I'm being oppressed, and we see it everywhere. And that's really a trump card that people use to sort of stop conversation about what really matters. But in the Bible, injustice is about the abuse of power. The rich and the powerful can be victims of injustice, but in general, the Bible focuses on four groups of people who suffer the most, widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. And we can see why these people experience more injustice than the rest of us, because they're generally a lot more vulnerable. And so injustice is about the strong preying upon the weak, the powerful abusing their power to serve themselves, advantage themselves, and hurt others. 
So what can the poor family do when the creditor comes and threatens to send the mother or father to jail or worse for not paying their debt? If it's a choice between going to jail or worse and selling your daughter into sex slavery, what do you do? What do you do? Put yourself in that situation. If your daughter does get caught up in sex trafficking, what do you do when you go to the authorities to ask for help and learn that the police are running the whole wicked system? When there are no laws or the laws aren't enforced, the victims of injustice are literally helpless. The psalm paints a picture of what happens to them. In verse 2, they're pursued and caught. In verse 8, they're ambushed and murdered. In verse 9, they're seized and drawn into the net. In verse 10, they're crushed, sinking down and falling. So we need to realize there are people in the world and even in our city that feel this way today. And it makes sense that they would cry out, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? From the perspective of the oppressed, the reality of injustice is enough to drive us to despair and doubt God's love. As we transition to the perspective of the oppressor, I want you to see this connection. The victims of injustice are tempted to believe that God is not present, or maybe that he doesn't exist. The perpetrators of injustice believe that there is no God, or at least they live that way. So if you look at verse 4, it says, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek the Lord. All his thoughts are, there is no God. And why would the wicked need God? They seem to be prospering without him. Look at verse 5. They're confident that they will not be moved or face adversity. Look at verse 6. And they're successfully doing whatever they want with the vulnerable people around them. So to the oppressor, God doesn't notice. God won't do anything about it. Now look at verses 11 and 13. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He'll never see it. So why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? See, the roots of injustice are planted deeply in godless soil. Why does injustice exist? Because in our sin, we reject God. We reject God's authority. When Adam and Eve sinned, how long did it take before injustice broke out? Just ask Abel about his relationship with Cain. And when we reject God's authority, it's a power grab. When we exercise authority without bowing to God, we abuse that authority. God made us to live in humble relationship with him under the goodness of his kind rule. And then we're called to love our neighbors who also bear the image of God just like we do. But when we reject God's authority, we make ourselves king. There's no power over us anymore. So we no longer feel the dignity and see the dignity of our brothers and sisters made in God's image. And we, we no longer feel this disconnect if we were to destroy people made in God's own image. And so we see that theology matters. One of Dostoevsky's characters and the brothers, Karamazov, says, if God is dead, everything is permitted. And Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. writes, I see no reason for attributing to man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. The 20th century was like a master class in the devastation of godless ideologies. So Hitler oversaw the killing of 6 million Jews, Stalin, 20 million Soviet citizens, Mao, tens of millions of political enemies and victims of famine. 
Pol Pot's two million Cambodians. And tragically, that kind of injustice continues even to this day. It's worth saying that many injustices have been committed in the name of God. And in these cases, I would hope to argue that these people didn't truly know the God of the Bible, the God of love and grace and justice. Gary Haugen actually says, the person without God, or perhaps worse, the person without God, but claiming God, Jesus, Muhammad, or whatever, is a very scary creature. And we would have to agree. So if the roots of injustice have to do with a mind and a heart that rejects God, the response to injustice has to go deeper than just the surface. We can't go to the oppressor and and just say, civilized people don't behave like this. We can't tell the racist or the trafficker or the world leader to just stop preying on innocent people. If the roots of injustice have to do with rejecting God's authority, then injustice won't be fully uprooted until every knee bows to Jesus Christ. And so seeking justice is not for the faint of heart. This battle is a long haul. I'm reminded of Jesus' words from the cross, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. It may sound hard to believe, but in our sin, we're often blind to what's happening. In 2 Samuel 12, Nathan comes to David and their friends. And Nathan tells David, the king, this sweet story about a rich man with all his flocks and herds and the poor man with one little lamb. And the poor man loved this little lamb and made it part of his family and he held it in his arms. And then one day, the rich man comes with everything he has and he takes the poor man's one lamb and he kills it and he cooks it for his guest. And King David, who has just committed adultery with Bathsheba and arranged for for her husband Uriah to be killed in the front of the battle, David explodes with anger because he doesn't see it. Nathan has to say, you are the man. Because David was the rich oppressor in the story and Uriah was the poor man with one lamb. So can we see it? Whether we are the oppressed or the oppressor, we're so desperate for the Lord to open our eyes and work in our hearts because it's possible that we're complicit in some kind of injustice against our neighbors and we don't even see it. We've spoken about the despair of the oppressed. It's helpful to know that oppressors count on this because a victim with no hope won't fight. And a world or a church with no hope won't engage. So oppressors know this and they take advantage of it. They want us to be oblivious to what they're doing. So much injustice seems to happen secretly. They want us to be morally confused about right and wrong, but more than anything, they want us to despair that anything could ever change. But everything changes when the Lord God Almighty enters the picture. So we've heard the victim's perspective. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? That's the reality of injustice. We've heard the oppressor's perspective. There's no God. That's the root of injustice. And finally, we hear God's perspective in verse 14. You do see, it says. So let's talk about the response to injustice. Finally, hope breaks through in verse 14. The psalmist writes, But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. You've been the helper of the fatherless. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. 
What the psalmist says here actually rings true with the rest of Scripture. It may seem that God is far off. Some may say there is no God, but He is there. He sees and He takes note. He's on the side of the vulnerable, and ultimately He will bring oppressors to justice. In Isaiah 61.8 we read, and it's other places too, Isaiah 61.8, For I, the Lord, love justice. And this all sounds really good, but how do we know that it's more than words? How can we really know that the Lord loves justice? Because anyone could maybe say what, what Psalm 10 says, I see what's happening and I'm with you and I'm on your side. Well, we can see this in the Old Testament in some ways. We see it in the way God responds to his people when they're in Egypt and cry out in their despair and God comes and rescues them. We see it when his people are in exile and God ultimately rescues them, brings them back. But nothing reveals God's love for justice like the life of Jesus Christ. You think of all the ways that Jesus' life and ministry are connected to justice and injustice. We see it in his birth. Every Christmas we celebrate his coming, usually forgetting that it was accompanied by Herod killing all the baby boys in Bethlehem under two years old. That's the detail that doesn't make it into the Christmas carols. But that's the world that Jesus came into. And then we see it at the beginning of his ministry. In Luke 4, Jesus shows up in the synagogue in Nazareth on the Sabbath. And just imagine this. He, he walks into the synagogue. They hand him the scroll of Isaiah. <laughs> it's a long book. <laughs> they hand him the scroll of Isaiah. Presumably, he could have picked any passage. I thought, why didn't he pick Isaiah 53? You know? It talks about the suffering servant. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. He could have picked anything. What passage does he pick? He picks Isaiah 61. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What would it have been like to be there? Most of us would say, Jesus came to bring grace and forgiveness. And that's true. But this passage reminds us that he came to bring justice. It's not one or the other, it's both. We see it also in his relationships. In so many ways, Jesus pitches his tent with the weak and the poor and the oppressed. So he brings the son of a poor widow back to life. He consistently loves and builds relationships with people who are either hated or considered unclean. And we could go on a long time with this, but here's a few. Prostitutes lepers, blind men, the demon-possessed, a Samaritan woman, women in general, children, tax collectors. He crossed all these cultural lines. You shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be hanging out with those people. Those people don't matter. And Jesus continually just crashes through those walls. We see it in his teaching. Jesus commands us to love our enemies, not just those who love us. Jesus commands us to show hospitality to people who can't return the favor. 
in short, what Jesus does is he carries forward this Old Testament emphasis on God's love and justice. He doesn't sort of move on from it or wipe it away. He kind of takes it to the next level. God's concern for the poor and the connection between knowing God and seeking justice. So often Jesus' issues were with the religious leaders who went through all the motions of worship and were oppressing people as they did it. So after all this, which is very encouraging, God's love for justice shines the most at the cross. Now this is a long quotation from John Stott, but I want you to hear it. John Stott writes, I could never myself believe in a God if it were not for the cross. The only God I will believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In a real world of pain, How could one worship a God who was immune to it? I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, his arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I have to turn away, and in my imagination, I've turned instead to a lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me, Stott says. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered into our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our suffering became more manageable in light of this. There's still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in a world such as ours. End quote. So God's ultimate answer to the injustice in the world is the cross of Jesus Christ. At the cross, the supremacy of Christ is on full display. At the cross, Jesus experiences the greatest injustice in the history of the world. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God bears the punishment that wicked sinners deserve. And miracle of miracles, those who trust in Jesus are justified in Him. So on the cross, Jesus receives what we deserve so that we might receive what He deserves. The peace of God, fellowship of God, life with God. And God's response to injustice is not to shout it down from afar or throw money at it necessarily. No, Jesus himself comes and experiences it himself and conquers it himself in our place. And he rises again victorious and one day he will return to make everything right, settle the score for the oppressed. On that day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And as Revelation 21 says, on that day, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things will pass away. The Bible keeps telling us that if we could just see in light of eternity, we would say what's happening right now is just a brief difficulty in light of the glory that's coming, a light and momentary trouble. And it's hard for us to believe that, but that's what the scriptures are saying. If we could just see it in light of eternity, we could make it through. Between Jesus' resurrection and his return, how does the Lord seek justice? Isn't that the question? Because we know something amazing has happened. We know something amazing is coming. But what happens in between? 
You may remember the famous words of Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So in this age, the Lord seeks justice through his people, the church. Why? Because we are his body, his hands and feet in the world. His spirit dwells in us and he has given us gifts and resources for the common good. When people need money or housing or medical care, you name it, whatever, God doesn't ordinarily just drop it down from heaven. God ordinarily uses people to meet other people's needs. Why would seeking justice be any different? I read this story about a pastor using an illustration when he was preaching on the feeding of the 5,000. So Imagine you're one of the disciples there that day. You're on the hillside with Jesus and there are these 5,000 or more hungry people. And here it comes. You know, you, you steal the boy's sack lunch and you bring it to Jesus and he goes to work. And now all of a sudden there's loaves and fish, loaves and fish, loaves and fish. Now imagine being there and just saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Loaves and fish. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And the food piles up more and more and you continue to just thank Jesus. But you never pass it to the hungry people. And you start to wonder, Jesus, why are you not doing anything about the hungry masses? Thank you for the loaves and fish. So Gary Haugen writes, the almighty God of the universe is prepared to use us, his people, to seek justice, to rescue the oppressed, to defend the orphan, to plead for the widow. How? By using the gifts, resources, relationships, expertise, and power that he has given us. Because the reason he's granted us these things is not merely for our joy, though great joy they rightly bring, but so that we might serve those who lack them. That may be what we need to hear this morning. So when Reed Porter and many others with ACT move into the city to confront crime, God is using us to seek justice. And when Will Dowell and many others with Behind Every Door move into different neighborhoods to love and serve the people, God is using us to seek justice And when we go into our neighborhoods and businesses and other parts of the city and we ask the Lord to open our eyes and stir our hearts to love and care for the vulnerable, God is using us to seek justice. It's no doubt the Lord is doing so much through nonprofits. My wife helps lead a nonprofit, but I worry that all the nonprofits have made us think that maybe it's not our work. We can go to fundraisers and give money We can post about things. Sometimes people call it slacktivism. But do we know any widows? Do we know any orphans or immigrants or poor people? Now think about this. I've heard the DFW Metroplex has around 7 million people in it. I heard that we expect a million more people in the next 10 years. Let's just make a really conservative estimate, say there are a million Christians here in the buckle of the Bible Belt. What would it look like if 1 million Christians were actively seeking justice across the city? it would probably look different than it looks now. What if we cared more deeply about racial tensions or poverty in our city? What if we cared more deeply about neighborhoods where the majority of high school students can't even read? I really don't know what it would look like, but I know it would be beautiful and the world would have to stop and take notice and people would probably be a lot more open to hearing what we have to say about Jesus if they saw the body of Christ living like that. So the danger in our context is doing nothing because we can be good religious people who say thank you, thank you, thank you to God and never leverage what he's given us to bless those who don't have as much. 
but I don't want that. I don't think you want that. I don't want people to cry out, why, oh Lord, do you stand far off? If there's something we can do to help them realize God is actually near and God is with you. So I don't want Jesus to say to us, like the prophets also say, I'll often say, and he basically says to the religious leaders in the New Testament, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So what can we do? What would it look like to have a heart transformed toward justice? Well, we can linger at the cross. We can see Jesus with all his authority using it to bless us. And we can see Jesus with all his perfection moving towards us with all of our issues. And we can see Jesus with all his love loving us who are unlovely. And we can see Jesus with all his advantages disadvantaging himself for us. And we can see God's heart for doing justice in a world of injustice. And here's why that matters. If the Spirit helps us to see the beauty of what Jesus has done for us, we cannot, will not remain the same. And that's what the Bible is saying. If we know the grace of God, it will inevitably make us a people who love justice. It will change us. He will change us. And we will long to love justice because he loves justice. And we will long to do justice because he does justice. So I remind you, close with the words of Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things... I delight, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you delight in steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. Thank you for what we see at the cross where Jesus is not immune to pain and injustice, but suffers the greatest injustice in our place, that we might be justified, that we might be taken out of a mindset that says, Lord, why do you stand far off? Or there is no God into a mindset where we know that you see us and that you love us and that you have come and you have done everything necessary. You're making all things new. Lord, give us excitement that your grace would make us a people who love justice. And if you delight in these things, Lord, help us to delight in these things too. Bless our conversations around tables and Lord, we thank you for your word. Pray that you would have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen.